This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 15 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. My guest this episode is Bonnie McIntosh, and a big thanks to listener and previous guest Eric for the great suggestion of having Bonnie on the show. For more than a decade, Bonnie has been playing some of the biggest venues and TV shows with some great acts that you'll hear mentioned during the interview. Much more important, though, than who she plays for is Bonnie's approach to her playing and the interesting journey she had to get where she did today. If you've ever had drumsticks or other implements thrown at you on stage by your colleagues, as you'll hear, you are not alone. Enjoy. Welcome to the Keyboard Chronicles. Really appreciate you taking some time. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, um, first question we've been asking our, our last few guests, given the interesting times we find ourselves in, is um, how are you going with the whole um, staying inside a little bit more than you'd be used to? Well, um, it's definitely a change, especially since I was about to go on tour three days before we were told so I was ready for like I was ready to be on the road I think I was like half packed like all of that was kind of ready to go and then it just kind of stopped so it definitely threw me for a loop but I mean it's been a couple months now so like kind of adjusting but you know, dealing with all the same uncertainty that everyone in our industry is dealing with right now. Yeah, exactly. And so how are you keeping busy musically? Are you just keeping your chops up or? Yeah, I've been like, I've been playing a lot. Um, I've been just kind of practicing and writing and kind of like, just really doing a lot of the things that I don't normally do when I'm like getting ready for a tour like practicing classical and getting those chops back and like just kind of going back and not putting too much pressure on myself to like be in work mode because, you know, we are in a global pandemic. It's definitely not a staycation, but um, I'm just trying to keep busy doing all of that. And then obviously, you know, staying on top of um, on what I normally do. So when work eventually does come back, you know, I'm not, 
totally lost. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you mentioned doing <laughs> some classical stuff. Uh, we'll probably start off there because um, for those that know your history, you, you initially had some great classical training and then went on uh, to do further schooling um, in music. Can, can you talk a little bit about that early start? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I started playing keys when I was five and I definitely went the classical route. Like I had a very cl classically trained piano teacher, basically the same teacher my whole childhood. Uh, she originally, my plan was to just do classical, eventually go to Juilliard or Oberlin. And then just kind of as I um, was in high school and stuff and was going to all of these shows and seeing all these bands and like, just immersing myself in that kind of culture, I realized that like classical kind of wasn't what I wanted to do forever. So um, I actually was able to go to Cal State Los Angeles, which <laughs> kind of random tangent, I went on a soccer scholarship because I was a college athlete and I studied classical piano there. But because it was LA, I thought that like I would actually find what I really wanted to do with music, even though classical was all I knew. Luckily, I met uh, my three like best friends in um, while I was at Cal State LA and we started a band together. And then, and then I went the whole playing every underground LA bar, warehouse party, hole in the wall, anything, you know, for years. And that's kind of what got me into falling in love with like performing as a keyboard player and not just being behind the keys, you know, playing classical music and playing other people's stuff, it just, it, I really fell in love with performing. And from there, that's when I decided that I, that there was like educational opportunities for me to get better at that. So I applied to Musicians Institute, I got offered a scholarship there, uh, convinced my parents that deciding to drop out of a collegiate scholarship to be in a band wasn't a horrible idea. <laughs> and then, eventually was able to start auditioning for artists and stuff through going to Musicians Institute. So that that's kind of that's the route that like I went and was luckily and lucky and lucky enough to have this opportunity coming from a classical background because um I don't know, most people that kind of start out that way either stay there or end up quitting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I know from a previous interview you done, you had a great um, anecdote about the fact that um, because of your classical background, you started in some of the more advanced theory classes, but as far as the ear training classes, um, you weren't quite as high up the advanced classes. Can you tell us a little bit about how the time at MI changed you as a player? Yes, that was the biggest wake-up call for me was that I did not know how like vital playing by ear was and I just kind of walked in there kind of thinking I was hot shit because I had this like all of this other training but like when it came to just jamming in with a bunch of these killer players I was completely lost because everything was theory and sight reading and just everything was technical like I, I realized how much like how much I needed to learn and um so going to my first ear training class when I was in like the lowest level ear training class possible, but like the all the advanced theory classes, that was when I was like, oh wow, I have a lot I have to learn. And then by just playing in bands and going to jams and just 
forcing myself to be extremely uncomfortable in those kind of situations and, you know, being probably the worst player in the room at times, that is kind of, that's what kind of helps me build character as a musician and it helped me become a better musician. And then although my ear training isn't like perfect pitch or anything like that by any means, I can still like hang because I like put myself through the ringer and getting better at it that way. That's right. And um, you also mentioned the fact that you were playing, you know, any underground band you could and, and, and being very active. Um, so transitioning from that classical to that rock punk sort of stuff to then uh, the, the pop sphere that um, is one of the areas you work in now, what did you have to change about how you played besides the ear training and what has remained the same for you? So what, what's, what's um, from your original training have you managed to keep and, and still rely on daily versus what you had to change to be able to adapt? Um, I think that the thing that remained the same for me was um was being able to was, was being able to put the physical act of like playing fast and being able to be technical but being able to do it without looking at my hands and by not looking at my hands i mean jumping around the stage playing under solos underneath the keyboard like interacting with people where the point where I almost never actually look at my keyboard. <laughs> that was probably, that was definitely the biggest change, like playing wise, but the actual act of playing, I mean, sorry, that was the actual change performing wise, but the actual act of playing wasn't really that different. Cause it was like every, I always had everything memorized. I never used charts. I never used cheat sheets like that. So I was always forced myself just to have everything always by memory all the time and that was something that I also did as a classical pianist so I was always really good at memorizing pieces and then just being able to add this like this attitude and this personality and kind of like in, reinvent myself as a performer and not just a player that was different and that was really really fun and really exciting and I realized how much more there is to being a musician and that you can be that I was no longer just a pianist anymore I was also like an artist and even though I wasn't fronting anything I still was able to feel like an artist in that way because I was able to add so much more to myself as a performer than just being the one that plays piano good yeah and that's and you raise I do want to talk about the performance in a little while as well but you raise a great point about memorizing so you, you said that even with your classical work you would memorize as, as much as you obviously could and, and you still do do you, do you use any prompting or prompt sheets at all I, I understand if you're halfway through a big tour you, you're probably not needing that but I, I know I'm paranoid as a player that I'm, I'm about to start a new song and forget what key it's in or do you, do you use any prompts at all um, on stage no but in like the beginning of the rehearsal process absolutely yeah, like yeah. I I've, in the pop world you know we they don't give us any cheat anything I mean in most worlds they don't do that anymore so you have to learn everything by ear but I like to learn it by ear by charting it out yeah. and then usually once I chart it out I never have to look at it and so when I'm on by the time you know I'm on stage everything is memorized all my samples are memorized all my like where everything is and you know, as a pop keyboard player, it's obviously very different than just a 
piano player because you have the whole all the sounds and the sound design aspect of the show that is completely different but um but all of that i just i make sure that it's just muscle memory and even still like there's times i get on stage where i forget everything like for the first five seconds before i hear the count off in my ears <laughs> and i always go around that where i'm like i don't like, I remember what the first note of the show is. And then, like, right before I hear one, two, three, four, it, like, all goes back. I think every musician has those moments. And I think it's that muscle yeah. memory thing, because you're right. Um, and I find the more you try and second guess, oh, what is it, what is it, and just go with the flow, it, it tends to be the better outcome. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and um, I, I know just about your transition to, to where you are now too, you had a great anecdote about having some drumsticks thrown at you. Do you mind just repeating that one for our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, that happened more than once. <laughs> um, so when I was in, my original band was called Black Party Politics. And when we were together, we were together from when we were 18 years old till our late 20s. And I remember when we first started, we had this drummer who was one of, was like a brother to me. And I remember I always had trouble just staying in time because like I wasn't used to playing with a click. I wasn't used to playing with a drummer. Like I was straight from just only doing classical music for years. And we were doing this, I think we may have been actually doing a show, just like a party warehouse show, and I'm playing, and all I see feel are sticks hitting my back. Like, this guy was chucking sticks that were the risk, that was the proper beat because I was rushing. And I look over, I'm like, what the hell is going on? And on time. And then I just, it was something that I always stuck with me, and I always stayed on time afterwards and I was like, Tim, what the hell is that? <laughs> like, it, but, you know, as a teenager, it's just, that's just what families do to each other and, you know, that's all out of love. <laughs> and it may, it may not be the most polite training uh, mechanism, but it certainly works oh. and, and probably has stood you in good stead um, with, with a lot of the acts you play with now. So, and I want to move on to that as far as obviously one of your primary gigs at the moment is with Selena Gomez. Um, and you're the first pl uh, play we've actually had on the podcast who spends a lot of hours playing in the pop genre. So I, I want to explore that a little bit. Um, so the, yeah. the, the, the first question I had probably is a, a typical show for you playing and technology wise. And what I, what I mean by that is just how you approach um, things on show day and, um, we'll talk about your rig a little bit uh, later on, but just how, how do you approach a, a show day and, and what are the requirements of you? So show days, I feel like in terms of the entire pop world is just, it's actually the easiest day for us because with, a, with, with such a massive pop tour, we have such a large crew that does our like that does all of our checking and like even sound checking. Some there was times on the show where like we weren't even sound checking our instruments anymore. There was like a crew that would actually do that for us and I always had my in ears in just to like double check everything was all cool. But like we had like a, it was such a massive camp of people that the musicians actually kind of didn't have to 
to deal with a lot of the things that as being a person in an original band, like that I'm totally used to, checking every single sound, checking everything, making sure everything is working, all my keyboard sounds are switching, everything's plugged into the right, my sustain pedals are in the right place. It's just, those were things that like, I was so paranoid about for like the first month on that tour because I wasn't used to like having that kind of stuff yeah. taken care of. They, it's, it's very like just men, mental. It's all about putting, putting yourself in that mental state because, you know, once you're on that stage and it's like an arena of 20,000 people instead of like a club of a couple hundred people, it's just, it, it's, it's just completely different. And if one little thing goes wrong, like, I have a couple of horror stories if you want to get to yeah, We definitely but do a train wreck section, so I look forward to hearing those. Oh, oh, I got a great one you raise another really good point there and this is more for our older listeners we have a range but for those that haven't been to a big pop show and so I'm you know talking Selena Gomez uh Katy Perry Lady Gaga Pink and, and I know I've been I went to my first uh, one about eight ten years ago it was Katy Perry and was just blown away by the level of staging and performance rigor and it was just an absolutely amazing experience so that is something that to some extent, older musicians may not have had to have uh, dealt with to that extent. Yeah, and I mean, and it it is definitely different. It's just there's so much going on in front of you, and I mean, it is an incredible production, and it takes just a massive village to put these things together. And you know, and these people are designing these shows just from the visual aspect and balancing the visual creative aspect of the show with the music for the show are like two completely separate worlds. Absolutely. And like, yeah. that's, that's something that I think a lot of people in like other like generations before weren't really dealing with that. It was just like one show. Now there's like two completely separate aspects of the show that have to come together. And hopefully those two things are working together well <laughs> and that's what makes these pop shows so insane and i mean I, I wanted to talk a bit bit about stereotypes because pop shows do have some stereotypes around them and and some some people would argue well the visuals are, are just there to replace the fact that um maybe the music as a general rule isn't as complex, but that certainly wasn't what I found, obviously, and, and that is a, a stereotype. But what, what are some of the stereotypes you've found as a, a player in the pop genre that you, you hear all the time that aren't necessarily true? Oh, we hear that a lot. Um, they There was actually, I remember 
like I'm endorsed by Roland and I remember one time they posted a clip of this ruling the show of a video of me playing and almost all the comments were like and I'm wearing like a um like a fishnet bodysuit with like on the guitar and it's a it's a pop and um all the comments were oh that girl isn't she's not actually playing she's clearly miming this is all trash she just put a hot girl behind the keyboard she's not actually doing just everything like that they just assume that it's they assume that it's all show that like none of this is real that even in this part's real but if you listen to the track it's just the whole song is just one lead line that i can play with one hand so I'm jumping around and I'm having a good time and like it just happened to be a really easy song with a very stacked lead line that I made, that I programmed, that I found designed, you know, but while I'm playing it, I can also jump around in the leotard and I'm still playing the song. So like, it just, it's just, you see those stereotypes totally come out. If I was a dude wearing all black sitting down surrounded by seven keyboards playing that same lead line, people would not be saying the same thing. Exactly. You know, so it's just, I think a lot of that, it definitely depends on the show and it depends on everything, especially as a woman, what you're wearing, how you're performing. People are always like looking to see if you're actually doing, you know, what they hear. And yes, there are some tracks and things but there's not this complete, like, the music isn't just replaced by someone who's miming and jumping around on the riser, you know? And that's, at least for productions I've been involved with. So, like, I am actually playing in the ones that I'm involved with. <laughs> that's so, right. I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but, you know, I, that is definitely a huge stereotype that I see a lot is that, is, is that. Those kind of comments, we kind of apply it to a lot of these pop kids because, you know, from people who've been doing this a long time and are used to doing seeing a thing a certain way and it's different, you know, they assume that it can't all be real. That's right. And I mean, um, I'm yet to meet a musician that is happy to sit up on stage and, and mime the whole time. I can't think of actually anything worse or more uh, more boring oh. than doing that. Like I can't even imagine it. So why that would be a, anyone would think that was a reality is beyond me anyway. Um, yeah, no. And I yeah. think I think it tends to get mixed up in that the whole click track thing. So as you mentioned, there there, there may be other the tracks in the background, which is is normal. And but I, I know you've mentioned and others have mentioned that the click track is just as important for the visuals and other aspects of the shows as the music. And that's why there is a click track. So it's not just there for the tracks, but it's for the whole show. Oh, absolutely. And like, just to like, if you don't mind talking about that for a second, because before that I'm like currently on, before coronavirus came around, the uh, artist Melanie Martinez and playing for her, this was kind of a different situation with the click track and the session because a lot of the sounds that I was playing was made in the Ableton session. So I'm triggering sounds that were created in the Ableton session, which is the same place where our click track comes from. That's when that click track is also the same thing that keeps the video light, the video wall, and it also includes the lighting and 
everything is connected to the same session. So if those computers have a lot of power, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's why they have, there's actually two of them, it's called redu they have redundant rigs. So if one goes down, the second computer picks it back up because it is so vital that those things are all connected because, you know, so they all happen at the right time. That's right. And I know um, I've seen quotes from you before that you are you very much prefer to ha have everything directly accessible from your your rig rather than rely on something like Mainstage or a computer to switch things. So let's talk a little bit about your go-to rig, whether it's Melanie or or Selena or whatever. Do you, you mentioned you're a Roland artist. What what are the keyboards you rely on for most of your work? So. Um, my favorite board that I have is the JP80, the Jupiter 80. It's unfortunately discontinued, but, I've, but it's still in my rig right now. Um, that is one of my favorite keyboards. I use, so for Selena, I use that one also, and with Melanie, I use the FA series. I have an FA08 for my weighted piano stuff and an FA06 for just like simply just because of the way that it feels um and i also have an accent keypad that i use for the selena show and then i also have an x edge which is like the newer version of that i haven't been able to use that in a show yet but i think someone lets me use a keypad i'm going off and grabbing that thing because it's amazing <laughs> um and then very recently i haven't added it to my rig yet officially but i just got the new Roland phantom so I was, um, so that's something that I'll be adding into my rig as well. And since most of those boards, are, all those boards are workstation keyboards, most, well, for the Selena show, all of my programming came directly from the boards themselves. So uh, all the sounds were sounds that I made within the boards. I just matched them as close as I could and, did, and that's where I did everything. So I controlled everything from the workstations. Um, in the Melanie shows, her songs have a lot more have a lot more samples in them, and it is a lot more heavy. So it's there's some sounds where it's pretty impossible unless I'm getting it directly from the producers to recreate. So we just got them directly from the producers, chopped them up in Ableton, and then I controlled everything from my keyboard. So so a lot of the songs, even stuff that sounds like track, is I'm either triggering a pad or I've assigned it to certain keys and I've just split my keyboard eight times or however many times I have for each of those sets. So two positives like pretty different as to how they're programmed, but like I since I know exactly what interview you're talking about and since I started doing the melody thing, I had to let go of my tears like <laughs> for a while to write down because I was like okay this is something I actually have to do to make this work so I uh, gotta chill on the ego and just go for it yeah that's right and you're right that is a very different approach to, um particularly with triggering uh and needing to know knowing your cues so you're quite right um and probably related to that what are, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as a keyboard player on stage over the over the years 
Um, don't be afraid of technology. <laughs> like, don't be afraid of new technology that comes out. Just because you don't know how to use it does not mean that it's wrong or bad or worse or something like that. That is something I've had to learn because I get really, really comfortable in the keyboards that I do know. And so sometimes I'll stay with a rig and I won't upgrade it fast enough because I'm like, oh, but this doesn't work so well. And then I'm selling myself short and then I go to the next thing and then I'm just like blown away by all these new things that I can do and I think that I could have I think that there's in hindsight I'm like oh there's here are things that I could have added to this show these are things that I could have played live instead of putting it in the track like I can think about things that way because now I have a whole new um like a whole new kind of world is open to me like oh i can trigger all these samples while playing all of this pattern while doing this loop line like i don't need seven hands i can just do if i program it right i <laughs> i can do a lot more than i was giving myself credit for before so in every show and every tour i think i'm learning a little bit more about that which i am hoping is helping me grow as a keyboard player because going from I only play piano, nothing else, to triggering Ableton samples is definitely not something that 18-year-old me would have thought about. <laughs> no, no, that's amazing. Um, and you promised you had a great anecdote about a train wreck. So let's talk train wrecks for a minute. What, what are some of your more memorable glitches on stage? Oh, I have a very, very, very fun train wreck story. And so, like how we were talking about relying on the click, which is what what you have to do in a pop show. I don't know a single pop show that doesn't have that. But in our case, we had one song, and this was with Selena. We had one song that starts off just just piano. So just me, no track, no nothing. And the rest of the band and a couple of tracks and come in about a minute and a half to two minutes from the song. So if I got to start it on the, on the one and I can't mess up or change the form in any way or else when everything else comes in, it's going to be not in the right place. So that's a part of the show I, that I had never messed up before and didn't even like it was it was a pretty easy song for me to play so that was never a problem however we did have this one show that we're in that part right before i go on stage to do the the that song i'm on like a grand piano so i have to get off of my riser i have to change into some dress and then i get pushed onto this grand piano in the middle of the stage with like a single spotlight and like selena's leaning on the piano and we Start the ballad section of the song. You can imagine it's a ballad section of every pop show. So, so I run out to do my quick change, and I in my in ears I'm hearing like a two minute warning, one minute warning, thirty second warning of how long I have to basically have the wardrobe people change me, and to get on to the piano so the dancers can secretly push the piano out, and then once I'm out there, I start the song. Um, so a wardrobe lady unplugged my pack <laughs> while she was changing me and my pack was sewn into my bra. So there wasn't a place I could reach it. And then my ears were just out and they were just gone. 
So I just hear nothing. And I'm, everybody has in ears in. So I'm like yelling at people pointing to my ears that I have no sound. So like this song is a song that I'm supposed to start at a very specific time. Everyone's supposed to come in. They push me on the piano and push me on the stage this whole time. Now I have no in-ears in, and I am freaking out. So I'm literally in the middle of the stage, no in-ears in. My in-ears are bright turquoise, so everyone knows what they look like. And I'm, like, pointing to my ears, hoping that the band, like, sees me, like, that I have nothing so they can, like, get on the top back and ask them to play. I had a, I had a backup emergency track like everybody does. So like if something happens, if I get hit by lightning, they can play it. So I'm just signaling them, hoping that somebody is uh, gets that I don't have in-ears in and plays the emergency track. So Selena is introducing the song and I still have nothing and she's getting finished with her introduction looking at me like ready to start the song and I can't because I don't have any inners in and I'm motioning for her to keep talking and she's talking and it's getting awkward and she's looking at me and I still don't know what to do and it took about a whole minute but then I heard my emergency track playing and and then that was the time where I just had to sit there and like let it play the song was over and I walked backstage and I just like broke down because <laughs> I was just what the it was twenty thousand person arena and a bunch of tech guys were running around like we know this wasn't your fault we saw that the pack was your, uh, your we saw your pack was unplugged we found your ears like we know this wasn't you oh my god are you okay so, like they were so nice about it. And I just, I, I still had to play like 30, 45 more minutes of the show. So I had to just like suck it up yeah. and get back up on the riser and just continue the show, which I did. And then afterwards, I just like, I just started crying in a quarter for like five minutes. <laughs> I was like, that was the most embarrassing thing ever. But it's definitely nothing has not been worse than that. So it was a pretty good experience that I was able to like overcome that and now I'm like okay it's gonna take a lot more to really mess me up that's right and and just with I mean because the show is so performance oriented I mean they're playing your emergency track you're nearly having to play pretend to play along aren't you otherwise you're feeling like a bit of an idiot sitting there not playing Oh, totally. And in that particular situation, that's when I was like, at that point, I was like, I don't even care. I just want to get through this moment so I can get off the stage. Like, because, like, we have those there for reasons like this. And, like, and it is, like, it's that was the only time I've ever had to actually use that and, like, really shake an entire song. Um, But it was it's there for reasons like that, you know, or else it's just going to get real awkward and Selena Gomez is going to be talking for 20 minutes wondering why no one's playing her song. <laughs> no. no, that, that is, I think that's definitely one of the better train wrecks I've heard. <laughs> so, um, bad. And, and what's on your bucket list, um, Bonnie, as far as future musical collaborators or, or to play a bit of a hypothetical, you know, who are your ideal people you'd love to work with in the future 
on your bucket list? So there's a couple artists. Like, I would love to play for Paramore. I would love to play for Lights. I would love to play for Kendrick Lamar. I would love to play for Childish Gambino. I just, I have a really broad, like, Mm. kind of wide range of music that I like to listen to. And, you know, I've been in the pop world for a while now, and I do love it. It's a lot of fun, and I think that, I can bring like that experience to like other genres of music and, you know, and I'm, and I'm in my 30s. So it's like the music that I'm, the artists that I like that are more in my generation um, tend to be a lot, tend to be not like in their early 20s with most of the artists that I play for. So I think it would be kind of cool to like grow as a keyboard player and play for um, maybe some artists that have been around a little bit longer, but it's, uh, but I don't know, I'm kind of open to anything, because I said that before, and then I started playing for Melanie, and I love playing for her, you know, and most of those people are 10 years younger than me, so it's just, it's just it really does depend on the gig. That's right. And I mean, are you a songwriter yourself as far as do you tend to like to to work up some of your own um, songs? Yeah, um, I, when I was in my original band, I co-wrote everything on all of, on the records that we put out. And lately I've been, I mean, actually during the quarantine, I've been getting back into writing because I kind of stopped when my touring career took off. I just was focused on that. And then now with this downtime, I'm kind of starting to get back into writing again, just to see what, just to kind of experiment and see what I can do with that. Um, so I don't have any like projects that I'm releasing or anything like that. It's just something that I'm getting back into, but I really love collaborating and working with other people. So who knows? Sometimes I'll write something and then hit up some of the artists and be like, what do you think about this? <laughs> Absolutely. Now that's great. Look forward to hearing more of it. And and what? So, I'm, I'm going to ask a nearly impossible question to answer, and that's what's coming up for you in the coming year. I assume there's some rescheduled tours and and stuff like that. Yeah, um, we're still waiting on to hear the exact plan of of tour rescheduling. Um, everything is kind of like up in the air right now. So, um, once I find out. I will definitely make it known. But as of right now, I think everyone that has all these tours planned is still kind of waiting on what the future of those are. So I haven't gotten to postponed dates yet. So um, we'll kind of have to see what ends up happening with that. So I don't know. Our, our situations, we're kind of in limbo still. <laughs> yeah. And what was the tour that you were about to go out on when um, the virus hit? As Melanie Martinez K through twelve tour. Yeah. We had been going on since September, so we've yeah. been doing it for a while. Yeah. Uh, and the final most difficult question of all, Bonnie, Desert Island Discs. So five albums you couldn't possibly live without. Ooh. Hmm. First, Rage Against the Machine, Battle of Los Angeles. Nice. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Probably Dresden Dolls, self-titled album from like 2004. Yeah. Uh, 
Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City. Mm, Daft Punk, Alive, 2007. Yeah. How many? One, two, three, four, five. Oh. Probably System of a Down, Toxicity. Nice. You're, you're destined to go back to rock, Bonnie. You're destined to go back. Yeah. I still listen to it all the time. Like I can't like rage is my pump up. Even if, even if I'm doing a stage on the top tour, I still listen to rage before I go on stage. Yeah, that's great. Um, and uh, Daft Punk honorable mention there too. And I'm, I'm assuming you're as excited as I am that they've got something in the works. I believe. I think it's a. Is it a, another film soundtrack? Oh my god! I, I I love everything they do. I saw them live in 2007 when they recorded the Alive album, and it like changed my life. I was yeah. just, I, I love those guys. Yes, yeah, so no, absolutely amazing, Bonnie. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and um, it's been great in doing the research and seeing what you you do. You do it so well, merging those huge chops with with the challenging performance aspects of it. So, yeah, keep up the great work and look forward to seeing lots more of it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. A big thanks to Bonnie for taking part and apologies for the sound quality at times during the interview. It's part of the joys of recording sometimes when there's 12,000 kilometres between you and the person you're interviewing. Uh, The Keyboard Chronicles will be back again in a fortnight or so, but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means. Our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboardchronicles or on Twitter at thekeyboardchr1. If you like good old-fashioned email, then we always love hearing from you at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. Most importantly, a big thank you to you for listening, and we hope to see you back here next episode.